Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, in your compassion, blot out my offense. O wash me more and more from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses truly I know them, my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done? That you may be justified when you give sentence, and be without reproach when you judge. O see, in guilt I was born, a sinner was I conceived. Indeed you love truth in the heart, then in the secret of my heart teach me wisdom. O purify me, then I shall be clean. O wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me here rejoicing and gladness, that the bones you have crushed may revive. From my sins turn away your face, and blot out all my guilt. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. Give me again the joy of your help. With a spirit of fervor sustain me, that I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners may return to you. O rescue me, God, my helper, and my tongue shall ring out your goodness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For in sacrifice you take no delight. Burnt offering from me you would refuse. My sacrifice a contrite spirit, a humbled contrite heart you will not spurn. In your goodness show favor to Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with lawful sacrifice, holocausts offered on your altar. And now let us pray together. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's episode of Truth and Charity, Bishop reflects upon the woman caught in adultery, as told in the Gospel of St. John. Our Bishop puts the story into historical context and then describes the scene as the Pharisees and scribes try to test Jesus. Then it's the return of the Catholic Word of the Week. This week's word is picks. And the show wraps up with Bishop answering questions submitted by listeners. Submit yours by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. Thank you once again, Bishop, for taking some time out of your schedule to share with us a little bit of your wisdom. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be with you. We don't have time to, to learn everything there is from, from your vast knowledge but <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll I, get a, a sample of it no no i uh you know one thing is to always be growing in knowledge yeah you know i love to read i wish i had more time how, how about you do you enjoy reading reading is a, a struggle of mine but i do enjoy learning okay. and i learn by listening to you and <laughs> other people that are much smarter than me oh uh, i don't know you know wisdom though you have a lot of wisdom okay yeah and that's one of the gifts of the holy spirit I will um, take that recording of you saying that and listen to it. <laughs> I'll have to play that for my wife every once in a while. Well, Bishop, this Sunday's gospel reading is the story of the woman caught in adultery and a bunch of 
people are trying to stone her because of her actions and Jesus intercedes, or I guess they even ask him what to do. So I don't know if you want to kind of explain this story a little bit, and then maybe we can dive into some of the importance of it. I think to think of the context, you know, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives and it was real early in the morning. He went to the temple area and a lot of people were coming to listen to him. You know, I, I always like to try to picture the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people were eager to learn from Jesus. I mean, he was a great teacher. You know, we read in the Gospels, he spoke with authority. So he mm-hmm. was attracting people. And um, I imagine he got up early in the morning because it's very hot in that part of the world uh-huh. and before the heat got too oppressive. So it was a pretty peaceful scene, you know. And then it gets interrupted or disrupted when the Pharisees and, and scribes arrived, dragging a woman. Can mm-hmm. you imagine? I mean, just try to imagine that, a woman who'd been caught in adultery. You know, they told Jesus she's, she was caught in the very act of adultery, so Mm -hmm. you can imagine that. And according to the law of Moses, a woman caught in adultery uh, should be stoned. So they brought her to Jesus. Well, why did they do that? You know, the law was pretty clear. Why didn't they just stone her, Hmm. you know? Obviously, they wanted to test Jesus, Mm -hmm. you know, because when you think about it, and and John St. John who who relates this episode tells us that it was that they were trying to trip Jesus up they were trying to test him because they wanted to bring some charge against him mm-hmm. because when you think about it either way he would be in trouble like if he said the woman should not be stoned mm-hmm. he'd be charged with disobeying the law uh-huh. you know so that would not be good and if Jesus said she should be stoned, then that would show that our Lord was contradicting his own teachings about love and mm-hmm. mercy and forgiveness. So it was kind of like a no-win situation, <laughs> but actually Jesus ended up winning. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but what happened next is kind of like the mysterious part of this whole story. Uh, we read in, in the gospel, Jesus bent down, and began to write on the ground with his finger. St. John doesn't tell us what he wrote. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so it's kind of a mystery. We don't know for sure. There is a tradition that I kind of like, and I think maybe seems most um, believable to me. Uh, And it goes back to St. Jerome, which says that Jesus wrote on the ground the sins of the accusers. Uh And... That would have been pretty alarming to them. Uh, We don't know for sure if that's what he did. Some say that he was just doodling on the ground, which is kind of a Jewish custom. Hmm. If someone was distraught, they would would doodle. There are others who have the opinion that that Jesus wrote a quote from Scripture about malicious witnesses. Hmm. Interesting. So these are all kind of theories. You know, we don't know. For sure, we can speculate. But the scribes and and the Pharisees didn't give up or didn't let up. They continued questioning Jesus, it it says in the gospel. So what did our Lord do? He straightened up after he had been writing on the ground. That was kind of like, okay, he stood up. 
kind of a authority, you know, the idea of a position of authority. Mm-hmm. He stood up, and what did he say? These amazing words, which really we all know, they're a common maxim today. Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Mm-hmm. And then he bent down and wrote on the ground again. Seems like at this point, the scribes and Pharisees were speechless because they, uh, it says they just went away one by one. Uh-huh. So they were outwitted, uh-huh. you know, may, uh, hopefully they were humbled. Um, maybe some of them were convinced of the wisdom of Jesus. Uh, who knows? All the gospel tells us is that they went away mm-hmm. one by one. And of course, at the end, I shouldn't forget the end, when Jesus said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replied, no one, sir. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, do not sin anymore. So it's really a beautiful story about forgiveness. And it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about in in our last program, why look at the speck in your brother's eye when you miss the plank in your own? Mm-hmm. It's the same message to the Pharisees again. Right. You know, like, uh, you know, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. So it's all about humility, being honest about our own sins and faults, recognizing that we're all sinners, we all need God's mercy. And he's trying to get that message across again to the scribes and Pharisees that they were proud, that Mm -hmm. they lacked this humility. And that's why I kind of think maybe St. Jerome was right, that possibly Jesus wrote down the sins of the Pharisees and scribes when he's writing on the ground. Mm -hmm. But in any event, it was their pride that blinded them. So it really is a, a, a great gospel reading for this season of Lent. And how are we to reconcile this seemingly two different gods, if you will, the the God of the New Testament versus the God of the Old Testament, this merciful Jesus versus the law of Moses that said that you were to stone an adulterer? Yeah, it's the same God, Mm -hmm. but I would not call that stipulation from the law of Moses as... um, as a divine law. Okay. Uh, I would say it was a human precept. There were a lot of precepts that were in the law of Moses. But I would also um, want to say that the old, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament because the Old Testament abounds with descriptions of God as being rich in mercy, full of mercy and compassion. So we have to avoid the heresy of Marcionism which was an early church heresy, which kind of presented the God of the Old Testament as this God who's full of wrath and Hmm. devoid of mercy, because that's not true. What does the Old Testament tell us? God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So there's, there's plenty in the Psalms and in the prophets and in the Pentateuch about the mercy of God. And, some people say that this woman caught in adultery was Mary Magdalene. No, I think that that did um, somehow she did get identified at uh, at one point with with Mary Magdalene, but I don't think there's any 
good scriptural evidence for that. All right. And I think that ending part, and you pointed this out a little bit, that go and sin no more, I, I think that's an important part that people might miss sometimes is in the idea of like, neither do I condemn you. Like we shouldn't judge. Jesus didn't even judge this woman. Uh, but he does have a, a condition to this, yeah, yeah. right? Well, he, when he says go and sin no more, I mean, it's obvious Jesus is not saying that he's not condoning sin. I mean, sometimes some people in their emphasis on God's mercy, which is very important, forget the aspect that we can't presume on God's mercy mm-hmm. and we are called to avoid sin, mm-hmm. reject sin. When we leave the confessional after after the sacrament of penance, we should have the intention of going and sinning no more. Right. That's true repentance. So really, we, we uh, have to be a little careful. We have to always hold both of these points as prominent. Um, the evil of sin and the importance of rejecting sin and avoiding sin, and also the fact of God's mercy to the sinner. Mm-hmm. to a sinner who repents. Yeah. And a good reminder for us to go to confession this Lent as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, coming up, we'll talk about the Catholic word of the week, which is picks. Find out what it is and what the proper way to handle it is right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, talking with our bishop, and we are bringing back the Catholic Word of the Week, and today we're going to talk about the word PYX, P-Y-X, and find out what that is. Let's maybe start with, what is a PYX? Well, I think it's good to know where that word comes from. Okay. In Latin, it's PYXIS. P-Y-X-I-S, so that's your Latin word okay. for the week, uh, Kyle, Pixis, okay. which actually is a transliteration of the Greek, okay. Pixis. Okay. Um, but anyhow, it's a uh, box or a receptacle mm-hmm. in the Latin and in the Greek, a box or a receptacle. Now, the, the Pix that we use in the Catholic Church is a small, round container that we use for the Holy Eucharist when we bring it to the sick mm-hmm. or the homebound. Most pixies are the size of like a pocket watch and it's usually made of some kind of metal mm-hmm. but gold, traditionally it's lined with gold in the inside because it's going to hold the Blessed Sacrament. Uh-huh. And usually you can, depend on the size of the pix, you could have just one host or you might have several hosts. But it's important that when we bring Holy Communion to the sick or to the homebound, that we we carry it in a worthy container, the picks. Uh-huh. Typically, when we carry a picks, we put it in a burse. A burse is like a, a little pouch, um, leather or some kind of fabric that carries the picks. It's called a burse. Okay. And, and you should put a string or a cord around it so you can put it around your neck so you transport it without losing it you know Mm -hmm. you can attach it you know put it around your neck but anyhow um that's it that's a pix and 
what is the proper way of handling it? You mentioned put it around your neck. Uh, could you put it in a pocket, or would that be? I would say your. I, I think your, your your shirt pocket would be okay. Okay. Um, it doesn't seem respectful for me to put it in a pocket of my pants. Okay. I want it. I put it in my shirt pocket. It would be closer to my heart. And then, what is the process? We see a lot of times our extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion will go up after communion and receive their picks that, that already has the Blessed Sacrament put in it during the Mass? Right. The um, I think the most common thing that I've seen in the parishes is towards the end of Mass, the priest will, will hand the picks to the extraordinary minister or uh, to bring to Holy Communion to the sick. Sometimes they'll, they'll say some words to the whole congregation mm -hmm. about we pray for the people who uh, the Holy Eucharist will be brought to. That mm -hmm. can be a very beautiful uh, custom. Or sometimes after Mass is over, sometimes an extraordinary minister will, will be given the picks with the Blessed Sacrament by the priest to take to the homebound. Okay. And then what is the proper procedure once you've received that? Are you supposed to go straight to, I mean, is it, yeah. is it bad to stop for gas or go home for a little bit and put Jesus yeah, on the counter? No, you should go directly to the person. You uh -huh. shouldn't go out to a restaurant. You shouldn't uh, do anything like that. Um, I mean, I guess if you're running out of gas, you can stop at a gas station. But yeah, you shouldn't do anything unnecessary. You should be, I mean, you're carrying the Blessed Sacrament. So you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't go to shopping or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And what about if somebody's a Eucharistic minister and somebody comes up with a PIX asking basically to take one with them on the road? Should they give them one or? You mean if they come up in the communion line? Yeah. Um, I've seen that happen. Um, it would depend. I mean, if the priest knows that this is someone who is a commissioned extraordinary minister <laughs> and designated by the pastor, to bring the Holy Eucharist to the sick or homebound, I guess that would be okay. But I mean, if someone just comes up and you don't even know who they are, you can't give them the Blessed Sacrament. No. Yeah. yeah. So just maybe direct them to the, the priest right, right. at that point. And then maybe just uh, mention to people as a reminder that if you are in the hospital or you know somebody that's in the hospital, I know when we were having our our most recent child, we were in the hospital and weren't able to make it to mass and we were able to be put on a list so that the, the Eucharistic minister that was coming, which uh, happened to be Father Jay Horning, came over to the hospital and bring us communion. Well, he's an ordinary minister though. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but that's not always the case. No, it right. Be a, no, a, yeah, you're a right. A chaplain or a... Right, somebody. exactly. It could be a deacon uh -huh. um, or it could be a, a lay extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Right. All right. Yeah. So if you aren't able to make it to Mass, you should definitely check with your local parish on, yes. on how you could get definitely brought to you. Definitely. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about the mother of John the Baptist and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. And I know some of these questions were questions that you didn't get a chance to answer at the Rekindle of the Fire Men's Conference, which we did play that episode recently, that uh, Q&A that you had at the Rekindle of Fire. Uh, but there was a lot of questions that you didn't get to. So uh, one of the questions, what happened to the mother of John the Baptist after he left for his calling? The mother of, of John the Baptist is Elizabeth. And uh, I don't think we have any knowledge of what happened to her after the birth of John the Baptist. I don't think she's mentioned again. Hmm. in the New Testament. So, so really, I don't, there might be some information outside of the New Testament, but I'm not familiar with any information. I don't think we know. Okay. I suppose there's not a whole lot that we know about St. John the Baptist for a long period of his time as right, well. Right, right. All right. Another listener said, I have a devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. I want to know when Joseph of Arimathea came to Mary to ask permission to take the body of Jesus, how would he have addressed her? How would he have approached her at such a moment when she was holding her son? These are all interesting questions, <laughs> uh, Kyle, because yeah. we don't know. I mean, these are questions that are not, re you know, not uh addressed in scripture. Mm -hmm. Although I think that the, the fact that, well, first of all, I'd say to the caller, the devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows is a very beautiful devotion. Mm -hmm. So, but as far as the um, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a good figure for us to think about. Um, you know, he is mentioned in all four gospels. Oh, really? So, and as we know, he's the one who assumed responsibility for the burial of Jesus mm -hmm. after his crucifixion. There are a lot of stories that came out in the Middle Ages about Joseph of Arimathea, but they're mostly, huh. they're, they'd be legends. But I think looking at the scriptures themselves, um, what do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? If you read uh, Matthew's gospel, it says that he was a rich man and he was a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes when we think of our Lord's disciples, we don't think that he had rich disciples. Hmm. Well, there was at least one, yeah. Joseph of Arimathea. And then if we read Mark's gospel, uh, Mark tells us that he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Hmm. By the council, they're talking about the Sanhedrin. Okay. So interesting, one of the Sanhedrin who was open to Jesus and was was seeking the kingdom. I think that's a very interesting description. Then when you read Luke's gospel, it says that he had not consented to their decision and action. He didn't agree with the rest of the Sanhedrin, obviously, okay. about condemning Jesus. Uh -huh. And then I think um, Mark, uh, John's gospel, what do we find about Joseph of Arimathea? It speaks of him as a secret disciple of Jesus who actually went to Pilate. He didn't, there was nothing about him going to Mary uh, and asking, hmm. but he went to Pilate asking to take the body of Jesus. And St. John tells us that Pilate gave him permission. Huh. Uh, and what did he do? Well, in Mark's gospel, it says he purchased a linen shroud and went to, went to Calvary, went to Golgotha to take 
Jesus's body down from the cross. And when we read John's gospel in chapter 19, it talks about how Joseph and Nicodemus took the body and bound it in linen cloths. And Nicodemus had brought spices along to anoint the body. And then they brought the body to a cave. And um, it's interesting in Matthew's gospel, it suggests that this was Joseph's own tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb that he gave for the burial of Jesus. And they did it quickly because the Sabbath was approaching. So uh, it's all very interesting to think about that. But another thing that I think, uh, when we think about Joseph of Arimathea, it's, it's, I think, a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah where he predicted or prophesied that the grave of the suffering servant would be with a rich man. Huh. So that's another point. And as I mentioned, there have been a lot of, of legends, especially in the Middle Ages. There's a lot in England about Joseph of Arimathea and even some who say that he, he went to England and he's connected with the Holy Grail and all that. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's just a lot. Um, but I would, uh, and there's also, there was a, a thing about genealogy in the Middle Ages where they said that he was Mary's uncle. Huh. Um, I don't know if you ever heard that. Yeah. Uh, but there's no no real historical evidence for that. Uh, so I, I kind of went off from the from the question. The question had to do had to do with him asking Mary permission, but there's nothing that speaks of that in the Gospels. The only one that he asked permission of, it sounds like, is uh, is Pontius Pilate. Okay. Um, although certainly Mary would have been, I'm sure, grateful to have a place for the body of sure. Jesus to be laid. You talk about the Sanhedrin. Can you? Talk a little bit about who they were and what their role was in the Jewish yeah, society. Yeah, they were a council of of um, of leaders, a council of elders at the temple, and um, obviously they were part of the the whole conspiracy mm -hmm. to uh, arrest Jesus. They were quite upset about our our Lord's preaching, and they saw him as kind of a a rebel and. Uh, they were associated with the Pharisees and the scribes, and they were offended by some of the things Jesus said. Mm -hmm. And um, they, you know, considered him guilty of blasphemy. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, exactly what their role is in Judaism at that time, I'd have to do a little more research about, you know, but, um, but definitely they're prominent there in the, in the narratives of the passion. Sure. All right, well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, where you can also find past episodes of the show. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some more questions, like one about incense, bells, and other sensory aids. And more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I am asking the questions that people have submitted for you to answer, Bishop. Somebody asked, as sensory-oriented creatures, the use of incense, bells, etc. can help orient us to God. The use has dwindled. How can we bring its use back? 
You know, I like the way the the caller prefaced it as sensory oriented creatures, uh-huh. because it is it's true. We're very much of a sacramental people, and therefore some of these. Um, Things like the sense of smell with incense, with its fragrant odor, you know, all of these things, certainly our ears, our eyes, all of that enters into worship and can help us to orient ourselves to God. As far as the use of incense, um, my experience is there are some priests who use it pretty regularly mm-hmm. at the liturgy and there are others who rarely use it. Mm-hmm. And, and they really have the option. I mean, there's no... Um, mandatory use of incense but it is mentioned in the liturgical books about use of incense for example at the beginning of mass the incensation of the altar at the gospel the incensation of the gospel book and during the offertory the incensation of the uh, of the gifts of the of the bread and wine Mm -hmm. as well as the altar and the crucifix so it's definitely part of i mean incense goes back to the old testament worship and uh, we see in the Eastern Catholic liturgies or in the Orthodox Church a lot of use of incense. Okay. So it does kind of bring out that sense of our prayers rising up to God like incense and mm-hmm. kind of the transcendent dimension of the liturgy. In some parishes, you, you know, you may only see incense at funerals when they incense the body. Mm-hmm. But I've been to a lot of parishes where they use it at Sunday Masses or at least at some Sunday Masses, or some places where they'll use it at bigger feasts, mm-hmm. um, like Christmas and Easter and sure. Pentecost. A lot of Masses that I celebrate, they'll use incense because of a, you know, a bishop's Mass. But there's also um, you know, other things like the use of the bells. That, again, is optional. Mm-hmm. When the, the person said their use has dwindled, I think I've seen it actually both incense and bells actually growing in usage. Okay. Because I think, you know, I don't remember them being that used in the 70s and 80s. I see it being used more today because I think a lot of our young priests like to that. Uh-huh. And the use of the bells, you know, they go back to calling attention to, uh, you know, during the consecration, uh, calling the attention of the faithful to the mystery that's taking place at mm-hmm. the altar. Adds a bit of solemnity. Mm-hmm. Um there might be some who who don't care for the use of the bells, but again, I I see them uh, the bells being used more often at uh, a lot of parishes and a lot of the liturgies that I celebrate. I notice that they use the bells at the consecration. So yeah, um, there's no requirement, but I think it's certainly warmly recommended, if not encouraged. It seems like a similar conversation to our one last week on Latin that yeah, yeah. we shouldn't get too upset about if it's there and you don't like it or if it's not there and you do like it Yeah, because it is an optional thing. Uh, you mentioned incensing at funerals. Is that mandatory? It's there in the ritual. Um, that's a good question, Kyle. Whether it's absolutely mandatory. I don't know that I've ever been to a funeral where they haven't incensed okay. the body. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so it, it may be mandatory or if it's not... It must be highly recommended. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then the use of the bells you mentioned during consecration. Can you talk about the times that they ring the bells and the significance of that? Yeah. Usually during the epiclesis, which is when the Holy Spirit's called down upon the bread and wine as we pray that the bread and wine will become the body and blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's And you know the epiclesis is when the priest 
holds out both his hands with the palms facing down. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit. So the bells are rung then. Mm -hmm. And then at the elevation of the host and the elevation of the chalice, when the uh, words of institution are pronounced by the priest, the words of consecration. So those would be the three key times. Mm -hmm. I do notice that in some places, they'll also ring at the time of communion. And I think it's, oh, I'm trying to remember. It might be right before the priest elevates the host and the chalice and says, behold the Lamb of God. I think when he genuflects, sometimes they'll ring the bells. And maybe that goes back to the old, uh, the extraordinary form. Okay. That they do it at that point, I don't know. But I have been at places where they ring the bells at that moment. Too. Uh-huh. All right, uh, Artis Smith asked, can you please give a brief overview of the interior life and what it means? Thank you. Wow. The interior life really is in our interior of our being, our mind and our heart. It has to do with our relationship with God, which is a very internal, interior experience. So, Typically, when we refer to the interior life, we're talking about our spiritual life. We're talking about our relationship with God, our prayer life. So, a brief overview. It's very important that we all have an interior life, that we have a relationship with God that's real, that's personal. Otherwise, our lives get consumed with the exterior Mm. of being busy about everything and really not stopping and contemplating the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth of our existence Hmm. and the ultimate center of our being, the origin and the end of our life, which is God himself, most holy Trinity. So the cultivation of the interior life is important. Uh, If we want to live a, a fulfilling life, if we want to have depth in our life and not just live on a superficial level, it's important that we have this interior space. So speaking of, of the interior life, we speak about a life of prayer. So mm-hmm. it's, it's good to, to think about that, to say, well, do I have a real life of prayer? Or is it just something that's very, very sporadic? Or... Is my, am I growing in the interior life? Mm-hmm. That's another really important question, which means growing in our relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all called to be attentive to our interior life. It gets to the level, the deeper level of our existence. And the deeper level of our existence is our life in Christ, our life in God. So that's just kind of a very brief explanation of what we mean by interior life. And of course, we could speak for hours Mm -hmm. about the interior life, the life of prayer. But we need silence in our lives because it's not something uh, that can grow if one doesn't have silence to listen to God. Is it a little bit like the difference between the theology and the knowing, the understanding versus the relationship and the communication with God? Yeah, it's more about the relationship and the communication uh, because it can remain on the external if it's just knowing things about God. Mm -hmm. It's like 
for example, we can know about historical figures. We study about Julius Caesar, uh -huh. about George Washington, and they're kind of a famous personality, or we know about Donald Trump or some world leader. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about this, it's not just knowing about someone. It's not just a personality or a historical figure. It's about a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it has to, be, it's something that's personal that it's not just of the head, but also of the heart. Mm -hmm. And it's a friendship because, you know, we're not usually friends of these people that we know about, right? Uh, but we are called to be friends of God, friends of Christ, which means relationship, which means communication and intimacy. And I suppose by not fostering that interior life, it's much easier to leave the church easier to leave the faith if we don't have that connection that part of it that's very true and there are people who never had that kind of personal relationship sure so if you know for example in our religious education it's important that uh, um, that we help children to have a relationship with Christ not just have the book knowledge to know okay Jesus Christ is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He's the incarnate Son of God. He is has a human and divine nature. He's present in the Eucharist. Okay, it's important that they learn all these truths of mm -hmm. our faith, all these doctrines. But if it's not internalized, if it's not a real relationship where they have learned to to know Christ on a deeper level where they, as a friend whom they communicate with, mm -hmm. it'll be very much easier to just fall away. Sure. So any suggestions then on how we foster that interior life as far as, I don't know, maybe retreats or spending time in Eucharistic adoration or Lectio Divina or anything? I'd say all of the above. Okay. And I think in our religious education, we need to, it, it needs to be an experiential thing as well. In other words, um, mm. I really, in, in our Catholic schools, for example, but I, our religious education programs too, you know, it's important that prayer be part of it, that mm -hmm. it's not just the book, but it's also helping and teaching the children or the young people to pray, mm -hmm. to make it real. Of course, that is even more effective when it's done at home. Right. When the parents were, uh, are praying, with their children. Yeah. Modeling it to our children and then teaching them how to do it as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess we have to be doing that ourselves too. <laughs> yeah. To be able to develop that, to be able to share that with our kids. I was with a family uh, not too long ago and it was really beautiful how natural in that family their relationship with God was. Um, and after I had dinner with this family, we, we prayed the rosary together. And these were little kids, so mm -hmm. it was a little hard. Some of them were. <laughs> but at the same time, it was really very authentic yeah. because the children, I invited them at one before we started praying the rosary to, to offer their intentions to say to Jesus their particular prayers. And it was very clear that they had a relationship with him, that mm. they they believed and that he was listening to them as they prayed, which was very beautiful. And then we proceeded to pray the Holy Rosary. Um, yeah, it was, it was just very beautiful. It's really important in the home to yeah. begin when they're, when they're little children. Yeah. All right. One more question. How do you decide when to wear your cassock 
versus your suit pants? Oh, okay. Um, well, normally I'm in my suit. Uh, however, if it's something a little more formal, uh-huh. uh, I'll wear the house cassock, which is the black cassock. Okay. I would say, for example, if I'm making an official visit to a high school, I'll often, but not always, wear my cassock. Mm-hmm. Or if it's some like big event that I'm speaking at, uh, giving a speech, whatever, I'll, I'll you, be a little more. When, when people are dressed more formally, I okay. guess I would also wear the cassock. It'd be a little more formal. Sometimes I like cassocks at the cleaners. I just don't get to it, or <laughs> or uh, you know, it's. Um, yeah, I, I'm not real, you know, like I don't have a strict thing about it, uh, but that would be kind of the general, general It's, it's a more formal occasion type yeah, of attire. Right. And I guess maybe we should take a step back and explain what a cassock is if somebody isn't familiar. Yeah, there's two cassocks that a bishop wears. One is the black cassock. That's the house cassock, but it has red buttons, huh. 33 buttons, like uh, the 33 years of Jesus's life. Okay. The... Um, in a purple sash and a purple skull cap, the the zucchetto. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's always you always wear the the pectoral cross. Um, so that's used. It's called a house cassock. In the old days, would be used around the house. And that know? would be what people might see in your formal picture that might be hanging up at church right. or school. Right. Mm-hmm. Usually the house cassock. Then there's a cassock that's all purple, and that's only used at liturgical things so that could be under the alb at a at at mass or if i'm giving a a uh uh, something where i'm blessing a place i would be in the purple cassock with a surplus over it Mm -hmm. you know the white surplus and usually the uh, special cross which has the green and gold cord that's what's worn over it Or so, yeah. So that's more liturgical, whereas the house cassock is is the black one is extra liturgical outside the liturgy. Okay. So what about a confirmation mass? Well, I would wear the um, the alb and stole and chasuble like any priest would. Uh-huh. Of course, I'd have the mitre and the crozier, uh-huh. and I may or may not have the the purple cassock on underneath. Okay. You know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. You know, usually at an ordination or a okay. big event, I'll have the purple cassock on okay. underneath. Or, you know, sometimes very practically, if they want pictures after where I'm not going to be in my vestments, I'll have the purple cassock underneath because it's easier because then I'll have that for the photos after. Okay. I mean, so it's all, <laughs> there's no there's no uh, one rule for it. Yeah. yeah, but I'll have to tell you, traveling around, it's a lot of stuff to carry. Yeah. You know, I, I have to have the miters and the crow. You should see me trying to put everything in the <laughs> trunk and then I'm thinking to myself, okay, am I forgetting anything? You know, yeah. and there are times I do forget something. Not to mention having to fly somewhere with all this. Oh my goodness, <laughs> I know, I know. Well, usually I try to go minimum Yeah, unless I really have to bring a cassock along, uh-huh. which there are sometimes where we have to, like if I'm going to be in Rome and, and meeting with the Pope, I have to have the house cassock. It's yeah. what, you know, that's what you're supposed to wear. Okay. So, yeah, but it, it takes up a lot of space. They don't have them over there that you can, no, no, well, not you really. can rent They're or too borrow. Expensive. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that uh, takes up a lot of room in the suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for taking some time out of your schedule for us. I always appreciate it. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Be happy to. 
The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Be sure to listen next week for another new episode of Truth and Charity. As Lent begins to draw to a close, we'll soon celebrate Palm Sunday. Hear Bishop reflect upon what we'll remember that day, as well as what we can look forward to during Holy Week, the week right before Easter. Then Bishop will answer questions submitted by listeners. Go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop to submit yours. You'll get an email letting you know your question has been received, and another, later on, letting you know when your question will air. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.